Welcome to episode 146 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast of opinions made up of four of the greatest minds ever talking about our passion for Linux. I'm Michael, and with me today are the Skeksis of Linux, Ryan, Dolphin, and Bo. So Zeb and Noah are out this week, and we have but we have two very special guests standing in: Bo Weaver, our favorite hacker and pen tester, and Dolphin, the developer behind the beloved MX Linux. So, Bo, how's your week been? Uh, it's been okay. I really enjoyed the Linux meetup this weekend. That was a lot of fun, especially having my grandson there, and he had a great time too. Yeah, that was awesome. We every time you come, it's uh, a joy because you always share some hacking secret or just something behind the scenes that people who don't work in that field, they generally don't get to see. And sometimes you even perform live hacks, which is everybody's favorite. But this time you brought something a little less harmful. It was a notebook from the old days of capturing server logs when you were working on servers, right? Yes, that. And I still use those things. That was my engineering files on things that I build or little projects that I have or ideas, I put them in that book. Also, I use a lot of paper at work, too. I use these books. The reason why I brought that one was that it's a new book, and it's only got stuff that I don't care about other people seeing. But I use those books. I'm old school. I draw out networks and keep paper notes that I later use for fire starting. Well, speaking of that, and for those who don't know, we're talking about, I have a meetup group that I started in North Georgia meetup group. So anybody who's in the U.S. in the Georgia area, you're welcome to join us for all levels, skill levels out there. But um, Bo, you also had the diagram in there for some little server you're plotting to build here, which was pretty cool. Yes, I'm building a Beowulf cluster out of 32 Raspberry Pis. It's going to have the same computing power of the first Cray supercomputer. It's going to run at like 10 gigaflops. That's I'll be able so to crack, uh, I think it's 100, 100, 100 million pass, no, 10 million passwords a second. Oh, I'm going to use it for a password cracker. And, and how many Pis was that? 32. Nice. Okay, so for less than... Less than a thousand dollars, you can crack ten million passwords. A yeah, about tw- but for about twelve hundred dollars, including the switch that you need and all that, it's about twelve thirteen hundred dollars. And yeah, I'll have a Cray supercomputer, an old one. What bothered me about seeing that though, Bo, and I didn't tell you this while it was there, but it's been bothering me all weekend, is that you planned your whole network out with this beautiful diagram and everything else, whereas. I just slam things together and get them up and running randomly and throw them some random place they shouldn't be and securely on my network. And, you know, I just don't think it's fair to show off that you have more talent than me. Well, you know, that's something that really kind of makes me really sad coming from, you know, I studied to be a structural engineer back in the 70s after I got out of the Navy. And so I've got traditional engineering background. And the first thing you learn to do is draw. And you learn about specifications and project planning. And that's something you don't see. You know, we call ourselves systems engineers. Most systems engineers I know uh, can't draw, you know, a square box and a straight line and make a network (laughs) diagram. (laughs) They need a program to do it for you. Yeah. And people forget, you know, a picture tells a thousand words. So I think it's really more like, um, you know, 
Bo is doing uh, building out a diagram and getting everything ready to go to the network. And Ryan, also, I, I would have to say I agree with the item in the same situation. But we prefer a point and click adventure approach to our network, <laughs> so that's just how we do it. Point and click adventure. Yeah, I don't know if anybody can. Can you see that? Yeah. So for those who are oh, uh, watching the video, yeah, yeah, he's got it all planned out, perfect diagram. I'm like. Yeah, okay. Um, let me show you how my network works, and there would be zigzags. and. Oh, by the way, there's a program called DIA, D-I-A, that comes on Linux, and it's in any of the Linux distros. Mm-hmm. But that's what I use to draw that. It's a great, simple little drawing tool for drawing out networks. It's got all the little router uh, icons and all that, and that but that's what that was drawn with, was D-I-A. Very nice. So, Ryan, what's new in your world? So, like Bo was saying, we had the North Georgia Lug Group meet up this week, and Brian, who's also known as Ninja in the Telegram Group, which you should join the Telegram Group if you're not a part of it. It's now ridiculously large with over a 1,000 people, but it's an awesome way to network. But he hosts this in his business that he owns for us because we basically outgrew every coffee shop that was out there. Uh, because it used to be just Linux and coffee, and then there was no coffee shop that could hold everyone attending. So now it's at this business place, and it's just been really awesome because we can bring a lot more equipment in, and we can even leave equipment there to start building some things for the local projects. So I highly recommend, if you're not a part of a Linux user group, to become part of one in your local area because it's just a great way to network with people and also get to know other Linux enthusiasts out there. But one of the Mm -hmm. interesting things that popped up, because generally, you know, a lot of the issues that may come in, there are people far more experienced than me uh, in, for instance, Linux or fixing Arch issues or that type of thing. But in this case, there was a hardware problem. And I was like, I got this. This is my realm, finally. Uh, So somebody brought in a... Uh, AMD 3400G and an X570 motherboard, which has the Vega graphics on board, so they didn't have independent uh, GPU from the system. And the problem was they could run Windows on it perfectly, but could not get any distro to run on it. So we have Brian there, who's an Arch guru, Arch master, loves Arch there. We have me, we have a bunch of people, John from the Telegram group, all of these individuals, very experienced in Linux. We're throwing everything on here from Pop! OS to Arch to Ubuntu to Debian. We can't get anything to boot. It just all fails. So um, there were a couple things that we noticed after four hours of troubleshooting here. There, one was uh, the possibility that the Vega graphics are causing, of course, the hang up, the built-in graphics to the CPU. Um, So we tried some different options to work around that. Still couldn't get it to boot. We also tried some independent GPUs um, that were around, but we didn't have the right power cables. Um, So the computer, we could not get working. Windows works on it, nothing else. Uh, It was one of the first times, actually, after four hours that I couldn't get a machine to work, which is frustrating. Uh, It certainly speaks to the fact that there's a lot to be desired when it comes to Linux support and AMD uh, together. Uh, with those because, again, you know, when Windows is the only thing working, it's quite embarrassing. Yeah, but this is also um, a new hardware thing, right? Fairly it, new. You, I mean, this isn't really that new. I mean, if, if you look in the, in the, I mean, this has been out, what, four months plus now, the, the, this, this stuff? So, I mean, sure. one of the issues is you're using a, the highest-end motherboard with one of the lower-end CPUs. 
Um, so, but again, you know, I, I think that this is one of those things that it should work at this point, right? We've True. had, and, and I'm not saying it's a Linux fault. It could be AMD issue. And, and I, I just don't know yet, but he's going to bring the computer back. A lot of people were running to their home, grabbing different cables and things. There's a couple items that we suspect could be causing the problem. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to find a distro that works, but Regardless, it was fun to spend four hours. I mean, that's fun to me. Spend four hours trying to figure it out. And, um, you know, hopefully when he gets it back, we'll be able to resolve that issue. But uh, it was interesting to see a situation in which we just couldn't get anything to boot with this um, distro besides Windows on there. But Windows did lock up. So there could be something else behind that. Um, but other than that, I wanted to mention that I wanted to give a huge shout out and thanks to everybody. We talked last week about the Gnome Foundation fighting against patent trolls. And um, just today, which we're recording this on Sunday, they have reached their goal. They have been funded for the full $125,000 in legal fees. So nice. just a huge shout out to the amazing community for those that donated and those who couldn't donate, those who took the time on social media to share it with their friends and everybody they know so that those donations could come in. Cause I think that's just such an important, um, it was important for the community to come together. Cause this is the first time many of us know of any patent trolls coming after an open source project. So showing them that you don't want to mess with us as a community was really important. Yeah. And also just to note that it's probably not the, the final amount that they'll completely need for like the entire time, because, you know, yeah. depending on how long this case goes, it could they, they might need more. So um, while it is fun, full funded for the initial launch, it might be a little more later. We'll we'll, fo we'll follow up on that if necessary. Uh, so, Dolphin, how's your week been? Well, my week's been pretty good. I'll tell you one thing. I started the week by donating over at Gnome for the fund there for the yeah, defense fund. Nice. So that was really exciting really a high point of my week sticking it to some patent trolls i hope but <laughs> nice. I, this has been a great week so i went down to ohio linux fest this weekend steve mo west in the destination linux uh telegram group said he was going to be down there and i have never met anyone from the mx community who who or anything and his son has actually contributed to our latest release so i went down and met those guys and that was a lot of fun uh sat in on uh, a, a sudo session where I actually learned something, but the guy was having some trouble, some problems because uh, uh, he forgot his notes. And, but once he got back on track, it, actually I learned quite a bit uh, about configuring sudoers files. I, I tell you his, his example was a lot bigger than what I would ever use, but it was oh, nice. impressive. Um, and it was just neat seeing people. And of course I wore my great big Debian shirt <laughs> and I walk in the first thing that happens is where'd you get a Debian shirt? I don't know. Amazon. I don't know. It came in. <laughs> you ordered it. It came in. I, it's, 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 you know, you can find it. It's fine. Uh, so we did that, um, uh, you know, fried chicken lunch and, uh, and a, uh, and, and, uh, and learning a bit about sudo at the Linux fest. Other than that, a lot of scouty type stuff, doing some food drives for the fall, getting ready, stocking up those food kitchens and doing some real world stuff. And I'm even starting to dabble on app images a little bit. So, Trying oh, wow. to get our live USB maker nice. cool. into an app image so that people on other Linux distros can make an MX or Antics family live USB. Nice. nice. And uh, that's it. going well. I, it's still testing phase. I've got it working on Manjaro, uh, Debian's Buster and Stretch, of course, the whole MX family. And I think we're through about half the Ubuntu's right now. 
uh, making sure the thing works. It, it, it doesn't work on Nopics, and I don't know why. <laughs> Just some random thing, right? It's 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 it has an error. None of the rest of them have. I don't know. It, it, it's I've got it checked, but we we've got we've got guys throw, throwing a, testing in our form. If they want to check it out and try it, it's in the public app development forum. They can download the app image and test it on whatever you want to test it on and then post whatever error message it gives you back because <laughs> it probably will. And uh, we'll try to fix it, but it's until you've built an app image or something like that, it is hard to imagine what all the actual dependencies of an application actually are. Yeah. And there are a lot that don't get pulled in by the depends because everybody just assumes a base system. So that's been real exciting. It's been real frustrating. And the other frustrating thing has been, uh, of course, MX release last week uh, or the 21st, and, uh, of course, nothing turns in bug reports like a release. So we've been squashing all the release bugs. <laughs> yeah. We really thought we had that wired, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, we have MX coming up later in our show. So it, it was a perfect timing for you to show up. Yeah, it was very good. Michael, how was your week? Uh, my week's been actually quite awesome. We've been lot, lots of work to do on DLN. Um, you know, there's, there's, we're actually working on. Speaking of you know, talking about where do you get shirts and stuff, we are uh, launching a DLN store, and I've been working on that. So it should be out by the time this releases. It's not as as we're recording. It's not exactly out right now, but it's it's close. And uh, we're gonna have a shirts for every show. We're also doing a DLN launch shirt, which is really awesome because it has like the network on the front. I love this shirt, and it looks great. And the network on the front and the back is gonna have all the shows in like a concert style, so it looks pretty cool. And uh, we're working on some other things. We also have like uh, different products that we're gonna be putting out, like uh, not not just shirts. It's gonna be like mugs and. Um, a variety of things, maybe even like stickers and some other stuff and some hats at some point. So we're working on all kinds of different things for the store, uh, as well as some other things to integrate to, you know, uh, different, not just products, but also different like things that we're going to set up for, you know, like affiliate things, stuff that people want to do support that way. Uh, but we're creating that and it should be released uh, sometime this week, probably as we release it this episode on Wednesday, it should be that it should be available by then. Yeah, huge shout out to Eric Adams. Um, oh, yeah. He is one of the hosts of DLN Extend, and he also had his wife, who is a incredible graphic designer, do the work for this shirt. And you basically, when you see it, I, I just love it. I know I'm biased, but I just love it because it has every show on there. So you kind of get to, it's like a, one of those concert tour shirts, you know, where they have a big, all the bands come in on tour and you've got every show right there in the DLN family. Um, it's, it's just really cool. I think you guys are going to love it. Yeah. And Eric also did a, a ton of work on the store and building it out. I think actually he probably did most of the work really huge. Thanks to Eric and his wife for helping out with this launch that we're doing. This episode of destination Linux is sponsored by digital ocean. Digital ocean offers the simplest, most developer friendly cloud platform. It's optimized, make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. You can get access to this plus all their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month, or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. And that's darn near free. 
DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. And not only are we, you know, we love talking, like, you know, letting you know about DigitalOcean because we love DigitalOcean, and we use it all the time for the discourse forum, the Mumble server. So many things about D Destination Linux are powered by DigitalOcean because it's such a great service. And if you want to get started with that service, you can go to do.co slash dl to get one month for free with a $50 credit by going again by going to do.co slash dl and we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring Destination Linux. But Weaver uses DigitalOcean. Well that's the greatest uh, call out ever right there. Absolutely. Yeah the pen tester himself. Now for some community feedback and thankfully this week we don't have anybody yelling at us about our opinions on Arch so that's good but Chad writes in and says to whom it may concern I would like to start off by saying that I really enjoy the Destination Linux podcast. Really appreciate you saying that. I'm currently running Linux Mint Cinnamon Edition. I would like your opinion on backup software for Linux. I would like to be able to back up two different internal hard drives to an external drive. Be able to schedule the backups would be a bonus. I'm just a beginner to Linux, so I'm not that technically savvy yet when it comes to internal workings of Linux yet. Thank you for your time and assistance, Chad. So this is something that um, I, I did a lot of exploring in, especially when I set up the FreeNAS server, um, which was Noah's recommendation on what are the best ways to get and easiest ways to get all of my systems backed up to that server. And to me, after researching all of the different options, and there are a plenty out there, Deja Dupe is my suggestion. It, Deja Dupe is a super easy interface. It is basically you just go down the line to set up what you want to back up, when you want it to back up, what you want to exclude, and where you want to put it. Mm -hmm. It couldn't be any easier. You can schedule it to run on different schedules, whether you want your backups to run once a week, every Monday at a certain time, all of those things. It's just a very easy, simple solution that's fast to set up on multiple computers. So that would be my recommendation, but we have other experts on here. So how's everybody else do theirs? I mean, it depends on how you're like in terms of this particular question, as far as like being a beginner to Linux and one of the easiest way to do it, but still be effective on it. I would say Deja Dupe is probably the best option because it's just such an easy way to do it. But if you want to do like, you know, and if you go farther in and when you get like learn more about Linux, you can do things like rsync and you could do things like duplicati and use duplicity directly. And there's things like that. So I would say in this particular question that Deja Dupe is probably the best option, but there are quite a few of them. I use Lucky Backup, which is older. It looks older, uh, but it has a lot of the same features where you can set up multiple tasks and so each one of this of the user's uh, backup scenarios would be a different task, and you give it a time, and off you go. Nice. I liked it because it looks very much like Kobe and backup from the Windows world. It has a very familiar interface. Yeah, I know that a lot of people like to use some of the terminal options out there, like rsync, which is more powerful. I just found the switches in rsync. I mean, it was, and I and I asked Noah about this. I said, "How do you remember?" this switch that is, you know, two sentences long. He's like, I don't, you write it once and then you put it into a script and you share it across your, yeah. Mm -hmm. your, but I just, I don't know. I didn't really trust at that time when I was setting all this up, the, the scripts that I had set up to do the backup. Whereas Deja Dupe, 
I knew what it was doing and I could see it running and it just made a lot more sense to me. So I eventually want to learn the scripting part of it, but I think everyone here uh, would agree you probably start out with a GUI and then go deeper into it from there. Yeah. yeah, I use I use rsync, but you know I don't recommend it for somebody new to Linux. Uh, like you said, you end up with a string about this long, and but that's the way I do it. I have a template rsync file, and I change it around for whatever I need. But it's got all the excludes in there. It's a bash script, nice. And I just modify as needed and use it. But I've used that script probably for fifteen years or something. <laughs> wow so once you said it, it's kind of a set it and forget yeah it. So, yeah i mean it's been modified over the years but it's basically the same script that i wrote 15 years ago to be used in a data center i just change it around when i need it yep up next in the community feedback uh sorry i'm gonna butcher your name but uh itor ator uh, sent an email in saying, uh, I was listening to your latest podcast and you mentioned Kubuntu was the best distro for running KDE. And he says that he suggests OpenSUSE Tumbleweed instead. And he says that he uses KDE Neon at, at home, but he, uh, but after, no, he uses KDE Neon at work, but he uses OpenSUSE at Tumbleweed at home. And he likes the, he likes this, the green distro more. He says KDE Neon is, uh, he get the, you get the latest KDE, but not so much regarding other packages. He also says that OpenSUSE adds some KDE integration to common non-KDE software like Firefox out of the box. And that's actually really nice. Uh, not all distros do that, but OpenSUSE does do that. And he says, he says I like rolling all the way. Uh, I left the twice-a-year upgrade stress behind when I moved to Arch years ago and never looked back since. And with OpenSUSE, you have Snapper. And he goes, well, not really KDE-related, but uh, being able to roll back the OS to multiple points in the past rocks uh, says it saved him a bunch of times while he was in a rush. And he says, Yast, you may like it or not, uh, but it is definitely one of the most comprehensive admin tools for those that doesn't feel at home on the command line. And he says, uh, awesome show. You make me feel part of something. And that's great because that's what we want to do. One thing I wanted to mention is that uh, a lot of people think that KDE Neon and Kubuntu are related because they're both KDE Plasma on top of Ubuntu, but they're different uh, because Neon is directly based on Ubuntu and Kubuntu is a separate different, a separate structure that's an official flavor, whereas Neon isn't. So anyway, I'm probably going to make a video about the exact differences, but just to be clear about that. But uh, I agree that OpenSUSE Tumbleweed is a really cool distro. Especially with their their plasma, I don't I don't they're not my favorite plasma setup, but it's different in the sense of like why I say the things about running Kubuntu as the default, as my default distro, saying for this is what people should use for for KDE Plasma, and that's ne not necessarily a fault to any other distro. It's kind of a fault to Plasma because I think the default Plasma setup is not good in many many ways, and I think Kubuntu has addressed almost all of those issues and that's why i say i said when someone wants to try out plasma and especially if they've never tried it before i would suggest using kubuntu because it's the best out of the box experience especially for beginners so if someone's coming to linux i would if they've never used linux before and they're just brand new and they want to try out plasma i would absolutely suggest kubuntu because it removes a lot of the headaches and barriers that plasma comes with in like other distributions that don't necessarily do that because vanilla dist vanilla plasma has some issues and i think kubuntu is the best distribution because it handles most of those 
Yeah, so it's interesting here. You almost think maybe Cubicle Nate sent this in and then just changed his name because of all the tumbleweed <laughs> love in here. So I'm not sure this is really a different person than Nate. Um, but no, I've, I've really enjoyed my time with OpenSUSE and mm-hmm. it tumbleweed specifically. I've enjoyed the distro. I liked Yast immediately. Um, and I think a lot of that probably has to do with they've taken all of these administrative tools and put them in one area. And that one area actually works. Whereas everybody else who seems to try to put everything in one area, it just makes it more confusing and you get more lost. Um, but there is a lot of people who seem to not get yast. Um, and I'm a little bit confused by that, but maybe it's because I don't do that as a profession. So for me, having all those tools there, easy to see and easy to find was welcome. Um, and if somebody's experienced, maybe they don't want to go through Yes, they want to do everything in a terminal. I don't know. I think Yes has this uh, interesting situation because they want to do, they want to simplify things, and they do it somewhat well, and then at the same time they do too much, so they make it a little bit more complicated than it needs to be. So, for example, uh, me and Ryan were working on something, and we were using OpenSUSE uh, during one of the one of the times I was doing DL at his house. We were doing something, and I needed to install something. And then uh, we were installing something, and it opens Yast, and it goes to the thing, and it's done, completed. And I said, why does this not go away? And he says, well, you just go click here, and it goes away. It's like, you did it. But it's, there's nothing on this window now. Like, it's really just saying, this is complete. There's no reason for me to manually dismiss it to go back to the thing that I was already... Like, that's the reason that the issues people have with Yast is because, technically speaking... It's very impressive, but they do certain weird things that the, makes the polish kind of go like, but does it need to do these things? Like also, for example, when you go to uh, the software.opensusa.org that you have to choose whether you're using Leap or Tumbleweed, which always made me wonder, like, why does that work that way? Because when you open a software in Yast, it's going to automatically be the one that you're using because that's the one you're running. So if you just open this that individual into Yast, individual package and yes it will give you what you're supposed to have because that software store is going to link back to your yast anyways right which if you're on tumbleweed it's going to give you the package for that and if you're on leap it's going to give you the package for that so right so it doesn't really matter that you have there's just, a lot like, of there's, inconsistencies yeah, yeah it just doesn't have the polish but as far as functionally it is it is go- quite good yeah so um very interesting too is that michael you have been playing with OpenSUSE tumbleweed as part of your distro hopping recently yes is it one where you thought I could keep this around? Well, it is because it's one. It's because of uh, the ButterFS and Snapper stuff. Like that is really cool, being able to go back and forth. So I can mess with stuff, and then if I don't like it, I could easily go back to what, right before I did it. So like that kind of thing is really cool, and I do want like basically every distro to have that kind of feature because that's that's just awesome. So, and you know, it saved my butt multiple times. Yeah. And having like, you know, ZFS being put on other distributions like Ubuntu and everything, like that's going to be a very powerful feature to get. Uh, But having that rollback option is so nice that I can just mess with stuff and I have, and even things that I don't really know what I'm doing on. Like I could just start uh, tweaking different kernel parameters and stuff and then, you know, seeing what happens and I could easily go back and not have to worry that I broke something. So that's a really nice feature. And I do like that. But in terms of like, um, overall experience and polish, I think that, you know, in terms of like KDE plasma, like this, uh, the feedbacks were about it. it the, their out of the box experience is not really the best, in my opinion. They may they make certain good changes, 
but they don't change the, enough, in my opinion. Because that's the problem with Plasma, is that you really have to change a lot in order to get to a reasonable state, in my opinion, for especially for beginners. So, like, but when it turns to, um, you know, what's the best distro for KDE, I don't necessarily have a preference of what is the best. I just have what's the best out of the box. And if you use a particular distro that you like and you want to put Plasma on there, you know, feel free to do that. My point is just, if I'm going to suggest something, I want to be suggesting something that is, I know f up front that people aren't going to have to deal with any kind of weird issues, whether they like double click or single click or whatever, or whether they like uh, a certain menu that's, you know, you know, set up that doesn't really make any sense because they have, there's certain weird things that Plasma does. Like instead of displaying the name, oh, of no, a, we got Mike no, no, no. talking about Plasma. Oh, gosh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go off on a tangent. I'm not going to go off on a tangent. I'm just going to say that if you have, like when you when you we get it okay no the it is the best yes and for beginners distros yes but when you and like load up a system and you go to the menu and you look for a certain software you're looking for the name of that software right plasma by default has the description of the of the software so it's like you you can't search for the name of it because it doesn't display it by the name and it orders it by the description so if you're looking for firefox it's actually in w for web browser I, why like it's just weird things like that so like some distros fix those things and some do not, but actually most do not. That's why Kubuntu is Open what I Open devs, reach out to Michael. He'll hook you up with some KDE. Yes, I will. Yes, I yeah. will. All right. And last, we have some feedback from Everett. He writes in and says, hey, fellow Linux lovers, as a migraine patient, I'm always looking for useful things to do when laying down on the couch. Destination Linux is perfect in that situation. It keeps my mind busy with Linux stuff. And then falling asleep. And that is a nice thing in that situation. Listening to the DLN stream from a Linux machine, Manjaro is my main distro. Manjaro has a really nice installer, especially when dual booting. My way to try different distros. Having fun with Linux for 20 years, and it started with computer magazines. My interest is Linux, freedom, people, and music. A true DLN listener since episode 63. I can't believe we kept a listener that long. That's amazing. You might be the <laughs> longest lasting listener we have. Uh, keep up the good work. I love you all four. Hugs from the Netherlands. By the way, I use Arch. <laughs> of I course. I love that ending. Yeah, nice. of course. I love emails like this because we get them from time to time of people who are dealing with various things. It could be ailments. It could be life issues going on. It could be just work. And hearing that this show helps anybody uh, to feel better or to, um, you know, have a better experience and make them happy, make them laugh is an absolute joy to hear. So thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for uh, putting in there, by the way, I use Arch because that's just very important for people to know. I'm just thankful for the idea to listen to DL when I'm having a migraine because <laughs> I can think of nothing better to relax to than Mike's sweet, dulcet tones. Yep. Uh, yep. Would probably lull me right off. Yep. Maybe one of those five-hour streams on 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 the news would work. Too. I I can I can do that too. Yeah, absolutely. What I wonder yeah. if the migraines are happening because of Wait. listening to Destination. <laughs> Why possible. are you putting it out there? Why are you putting that uh, out there? Oh. Yeah, no, we're just the ones like that a right, right there. Yeah. The DNL network does not have any liability insurance pertaining to migraines. <laughs> exactly. Especially when you bring up plasma and you have Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> we love hearing from our worldwide community. 
We have many ways that to be you get your voice heard, including just sending an email and also sending your own video in. So if you want to send in a short email or video, you can do that by going to going to or not going to because you're whatever. You can just send an email to uh, comments at destinationlinux.org where you can send a, a, a email if you want to just send a comment or video links. Like you can go to put it up on YouTube and do like an unlisted if you want to, or you can just put it in your channel. That's fine too. And just send it to us and we'll uh, maybe even include it into the show. So especially, and if you, if you do that, we're still doing the swag, I think, right? So yeah. So, yeah. so if you, if you do get a video on the show, you'll get some swag sent out to you if you'd like to have that. So uh, be sure to send it out to comments at destinationlinux.org. So this week in the news, we have Fedora 31 being released. So Fedora 31 and all of its flavors have been updated right on time, right on schedule. They released it. So if you're following the schedule that they put out there, this is when they plan to release it and boom, they hit it. Of course, it comes with the latest GNOME 3.34 with all of the suites of enhancements in there that we've talked about. Um, refresh background choosers, Firefox is now running natively in Wayland, custom application folders, those type of things. We also talked about the fact because there was some discussion about, well, Fedora is dropping 32-bit support for bootable images. Why isn't everybody up in arms? Because when Ubuntu announced it, Everyone was mad. Fedora announces it. Nobody's mad. Well, big difference here. Um, they're keeping the 32-bit support for applications such as Wine and Steam and everything else, which is what Ubuntu eventually did after the outcry. So that's why nobody outcried here over Fedora doing it because they basically, I think, either learned from the lesson or had this plan to begin with, which is the right way to get 32-bit support eventually moved out. Updated the kernel 5.3.7, uh, Mesa 19.2. Uh, another change that they have here, and this is a quote from Fedora Magazine, the Docker package has been removed from Fedora 31. It has been replaced by the upstream package Mobi Engine, which includes the Docker CLI as well as uh, the Docker Engine. However, we recommend instead that you use Podman, which is a C-Group's V2 compatible container engine. CLI is compatible with Docker's Fedora 31 uses C-Group's V2 by default. So I guess that means a lot to people who use a lot of Dockers, but didn't mean a whole lot to me. But I have seen some people complaining about this change, certain things not working correctly, specifically with Red Hat. And um, my understanding is that Fedora 31 is in, in Red Hat in this particular area, at least have the very same setup of moving to this Podman, um, and certain issues have been caused from this. I think Podman is made by Red Hat. I could be wrong about that, but I, th I think it is. Um, but it and there's there are some arguments about whether or not Podman and Builda are better than Docker in certain ways. Um, Docker has you know kind of like the it wasn't really the initiator of the concept, but they're the they're the ones that popularized it, and they were one of the originals uh, in that in that space. And they they the way they did it, they kind of like cut corners initially, and have since then you know, solved most of the issues that people had with it. Um, but it is kind of interesting because, well, not most issues, you know, significant issues, I guess. And uh, so it's interesting that they decided to do this because Docker is like the go-to most popular version of for containers. And uh, a lot of uh, projects will actually release Docker images rather than, you know, you know, trying to focus on supporting a specific distribution or specific setup. They'll just release Docker images. So it is interesting that they're doing this, but, you know, I don't really have a preference of which one they're doing. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that works out. Yeah, I, 
I was surprised by that too. Like Ryan, a lot of that's a lot of, little bit of jibber jabber for me. But even I know what a Docker is. The concept of a Docker. I've heard that name a hundred times, but don't I don't really play in the server space. But it was just kind of weird uh, that you're shifting away from the entire terminology and everything. Yeah. They're kind of doing their own thing, and um, it'll be interesting to know for people who are using these on a regular basis whether you like the path and you can write us an email and let us know that Red Hat has gone here or whether you think that you know them going kind of their own direction here is a negative. I'd be very interested to hear people's opinions on that. Um, but in addition, they're switching RPM compression to ZTSD. So this is supposed to decrease the amount of compression time needed and improves overall performance. But I was looking at some work that Pharonix did recently uh, on the performance front, um, specific to just the distros overall. And you know, the Pharonix test suite, it's like 900 different benchmarks in all of these areas. And he was testing against Ubuntu 19.10 and Fedora 31, along with Fedora 30. And he threw in Clear Linux. Now, not surprising at all, Clear Linux dominated everybody. Uh, It's 20% faster. Uh, across the board. That's kind of clear Linux claim to fame, if you will. I don't think it has much, but it basically it's purpose. Yeah, basically it runs everything really fast. Um, But uh, I I don't think it's a very usable distro outside of that for most people. Um, But Ubuntu 19.10 was about 5% faster overall than Fedora 31, according to those conclusions, which, you know, isn't a huge honest uh, gain that, and there were, in de- depending on the benchmark areas where Fedora 31 was faster and there are areas where Ubuntu was faster. Um, but I will say, regardless of the benchmark tests, it was really nice to see a tweet out there from Ubuntu sending a nice congratulations to Fedora on their Fedora 31 release, which, you know, uh, it just shows and demonstrates community engagement, right? Everybody's happy uh, for everyone who gets a release out there. And I think that went a long way. Um, for everyone to kind of see that partnership because they all are working on similar projects in many ways. For instance, the enhancement of GNOME, the enhancement of Wayland, all of the work that they're doing benefits all the distros. So it's good to see, you know, that partnership and kind of collaboration there. Yeah, I definitely like the the community engagement, like the, the way and a lot of distributions are doing that because I mean, most people like look at these distributions as being like competitors to each other. And technically speaking, they are right. But uh, most of the time, the developers in various different distros actually contribute to many other distributions as well. So like you'll have uh, people who work on Kubuntu working in Neon, people who work on Debian working in Ubuntu, and people who work in Fedora also building packages for OpenSUSE and etc. So there's a there's people there's a lot of overlap as well. So it's not just a competitive nature. In that's one of the best things about open source, of course, is like the, the, the collaboration that's going on in all these different projects. And it's it's also nice to see that they're doing it in like a public marketing sort of way too. Yeah, absolutely. It's always nice when the big boys are nice to each other. That's right. If they can get along, we can too, Michael. We'll see. So speaking of distributions collaborating, uh, MX19 was released recently, and MX does a lot of collaboration with Antics and Debian and everything. And having Dolphin on this the show for this episode is like great timing uh, especially mess up anything yeah anything we say he can correct right here on the spot yeah exactly it's completely a coincidence that i'm here <laughs> yes exactly we we did not plan this at all <laughs> we we but we gave him a ton of timing 
for him. Yeah. Like we, you know, we we had it. You had at least forty five minutes of head head lead time for being on the show. So that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so we we've been in deep interviews for the last few weeks, but we didn't want to miss an opportunity to talk to uh, you know one of our favorite favorite Debian based distributions developers yes. uh, because MX Linux is one of the I think one of the top Debian based distributions available without a doubt. Yeah. So uh, you know, thanks for coming on the show, uh, Dolphin, and, and just to you know, is there anything specific you want to talk about, like like the biggest news related to MX nineteen? Well, the the biggest news, uh, I don't know if it's big news. What I consider big news, what other people consider big news are different things. But one of the the expansion of our dev development team and and in addition to that, contributions from outside the dev team was at an all-time high for for the 19 release. We had had people chipping in from all over the place. The uh, bug reports were really good. The um, uh, I, I think in the release notes, I gave a shout out to the BDL. Uh, online lug group on YouTube nice. because they like ripped us for two weeks and gave me a whole list of stuff. And I don't know what it is. Colin over there. Uh, I don't know what the heck you're doing down there in Australia, but you find some of the strangest stuff in these fixes. <laughs> it's because they're upside and, down. The district. I guess it's the world's backwards. Never, yeah. <laughs> right. But, uh, exactly. But we got you fixed now. The guy who does our, who's a prime prime dev on the installers also in Australia. He's in your same time zone, man. So you better watch out. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, uh, we we still have, unlike most other distributions, we've kind of chosen a kind of a weird path where we're, we're saying, look, we want to support the Annex Live system because it's awesome. The Annex Live system has some, some feature expansions, one of which I may, you mentioned your graphics card thing at your, mm-hmm. at your I'll, I'll touch on that here in a second. The Annex Live system, of course, you can run off of a USB stick. This is actually my install for MX-19. It's got all my apps on it already because of the persistent stuff. I've got everything. I got KDN Live on here. I got, I got, Zoom, I got all my stuff. If I ever nuke my hard drive, I just pop it in, done. Ten minutes later, I'm back up and running. No problem. But Annex is a little more uh, involved in the non-system D movement. Okay, they they want to hold that stuff. Part of that is because the live system was was developed under SysV and it and it works really well under that. The other part is is that some of the a couple of, some of the developers have have some problems with with system D, and that's fine. I get it. I understand. It's not a political right. stance for me uh, because MX ships with both. If you're running it on live, uh, you could it's it's going to be SysV, but if you install it, you can actually use either one you want. And they're in the they're in the boot menu already. This is from the System D shim project, which Ubuntu started and then quit developing. But because Debian is like you know light years behind in what packages get into the system, uh, it really only hit us recently. Okay. So we put out the word, guy chipped in, or we fought our first bug bounty. So some, some donations helped make that happen. And right. we are now hosting the system D shim, at least a version that works for us on, on, on our Git repo. And uh, so that's how we're able to do that. So we're most distributions currently are, are choosing one or the other. We're kind of still straddling the fence. So if you like to play around uh, with a lot of different things, you still can. Uh, about the only thing you can't run out of the box is uh, snaps, but if you spoot system B, you can. It, it's fine. Nice. Um, and we actually, because of we uh, of uh, wanting to chip in with the Debian and Knit diversity folks, uh, some changes were made to Knit strips that make things like flat packs work better. 
under Buster. So it was a minor change. It's like three lines of code. They just knowing where that three lines of code were took a really long time to find. And we flipped it around, and now everybody's all, you know, kumbaya happy, sort of, kind of. They're still fighting over it, whatever. <laughs> I'm not. It's on the thing. Yeah. Uh, we've It's just just had a great development cycle. It was longer than usual. I actually started working on it back in January, trying to make the system D stuff work, uh, work out. And that took a really long time to settle. Once that was all settled out, it wasn't too bad. And then we ended up waiting for XFC 4.14 because, yeah. you know, why would you? That makes sense. I'm actually, that's one of the things that's about like from the release notes, like it's one of the big version fee, uh, updates is the XFC 4.14. So like that, that's really good. And I, 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 that's a good decision to wait for it because I think that, um, as far as like, if you're, when you ship, you, you ship XFC as a default DE, right? It's the only DE that we officially support. There are, with the snapshot technology from Antics and built into MX, you people make spins. They make all sorts of spins. There's the this, this, the last release, the 1718 series had had release had spins for KDE, Budgie, Mate, i3, uh, all from the community. We didn't we just we list them out in a thread and point people where they can download them if they want to play. But the only official DE we support is XSCE. Okay, nice. so that makes sense why you want to get the four well, I mean, it's a well, it's a decision. You know, it happens to be my favorite. Person. It's not plasma, no, but it's a, it's still good. <laughs> Honestly, from a development cycle, XFCE matches really well in with Debian. It just it just kind of goes along, and actually, they've actually picked up a little bit. So yeah. it, we we're, we're keeping an eye on that. Yeah. But uh, uh, there there's it's got some neat features. My my favorite is the fact that we actually have high DPI support now. Now it's mm-hmm. it's whole number high DPI because that's what XFCE currently supports. Right. Uh, so you can do one or two. I did find an interesting bug during development that if you put a zero in there, you would just completely crash the system and <laughs> never get it back. I think Sean took care of that. I don't know. <laughs> so you were talking about the GPU stuff, and I'm really interested to hear what you say because, to be honest, one of the issues, the the only reason I don't run MX, because when I was, as you know, uh, starting my Linux journey, when I found MX, I was like, this is home. This is everything I want. Um, you don't just have a basic Debian install. You have a ton of applications to make people's lives easier that you have custom created in there. And I think a lot of the decisions that you make are perfect and exactly I what that, I want. But okay. the, the, the issue that I run into with anything Debian-based is it's so old. And you know, in comparison to what is rolling out there. So for people who have older machines and that type of thing. It's always been great. Run Debian. You're going to have a wonderful time. It's going to work. If you're someone like me who goes and AMD releases a new GPU next month and I'm the first one in line to have it and plug it in and Mesa is some old version and the kernel's too old and nothing's in there, I can't use it. So did you guys find a workaround for that? Well, Typically what we do, and I'm not exactly sure of the status of the test repo right now, but typically what we do is over time, we will update Mesa. We already have new kernels. You can download a 5.4 kernel right now if you want to. And with the live USB switcher kernel updater, you can even do it on your USB before you ever install if you really, really want to. Um, It's, it's, I got a video on it and I'll be updating my video series here as time allows, but um, there's been a lot of change in the live system. But a lot of times, well, how do I do that the first time? Okay, so fine. Once I get in, I can update. Once I get in, I can do the kernel change. How do I get in the first time? So we got a couple of, we got a, a, it's kind of an experimental feature, but it's a secret feature. And Zeb's used it on an RTX NVIDIA card that wasn't supported by our kernel. 
Nice. Or by the no, Nobu driver, rather. We have a boot code, and it's only on the MX and Annex Live systems. I should say Annex Live system because we use that. It's just customized for us. We have a code, boot code called nuke equals XORG. Now, that sounds horrible, right? It sounds like you're just going to destroy the universe and not, not have X when you're done. But actually, <laughs> what it does is we go the other way. Right now, the kernel and, and, and everything, the whole boot-up chain says, okay, we're going to use the latest drivers we have and try to get those and go. Well, it doesn't work with Novo because on the RTX NVIDIA card, at least the version that's in Debian 4.19, because it, it doesn't support the card. And so you end up at a console prompt, which is fine. The console, you can install your NVIDIA drivers and go. But you can also use this new equals XORG thing. And what it will do, it will force the system to use alternate drivers that may or may not work out right. It worked in, Deb's, in Zeb's case. He it loads, <laughs> you're not going to like it, but it gets you to the system. It's, it uses a frame buffer driver if you're booting UEFI, and it uses VESA if you're booting uh, a legacy boot. And then it also co- prevents the current the KMS driver from actually loading. I don't know what actually loads. This is That's above my pay grade as far as the boot chain goes. Right. I don't know what actually loads for, a cur- for, for, the, for the video driver, just TTY, I think. But... X will run inside the with with just the frame buffer driver on on most of my lap actually all my laptops as a matter of fact. So instead of trying to update and update and update and update and, and keep up with it, we just go backwards, take you back to a known basic condition, and system boots right up. Hmm. Interesting. Um, it's a seek. It's it's kind. It's not really documented real well. We've used it in the forums a few times for people that have had trouble. It's kind of a Bidjam, if you're watching, that one's for you because he want we were we were he worked really hard on that trying to make that system work. Um, and Felix, our German uh, live boot grub booting guru, nice. uh, figured out how how to do this. So it works. I'm not gonna say it's gonna work 100 percent of the time, but I would bet on an unsupported AMD card that it would get you to X, and then you could update all the other all the other stuff. So is it optimal? No, but for for a non rolling distribution. I mean, honestly, I mean, how often do we want to ha- update the kernel? I don't know how often, a, how often is the kernel update on a rolling distribution? I don't even know. I'm Debian. I don't update very often. You know, I mean, it, it rolls pretty much within the time frame that a new kernel comes out. They they come out quite often, I would say. Yeah, like every month, month right? Yeah. Every month and a half I think or they, I think they yeah. used to, I think they're actually increasing it, but it, I'm pretty sure it was every six weeks. It might now be every four weeks, but I know it's, 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 it's either one of those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so for us, and and also for Antics too, they don't they don't keep up with Mesa, uh, as far as I know. But we do keep up with. Well, Antics does it a little different. Antics allows you to roll an, roll uh, roll with Debian testing, so you it, that kind of takes care of itself over time. We don't really track testing at all, so we just update stuff in our own test repo, and people can install it from Linux package installer. I'll tell you one thing that I've uh, been kind of excited about is the installer, our installer and. Antics and MX share the same installer. It's actually the actually it's exactly the same installer with a different theme pack attached to it, so for graphics and text and stuff. But that thing, we we had some NV RAM stuff real early on. We found out that some of your high end NV um, what do you call the the, the, the hard NVMe drives? Drives, yeah. NVMe's. Yes, thank you. The NVMe, NVMe drives. M2. They don't update their partition table information quite as fast as you think they should right. for a, for a piece of hardware as expensive as they are. And so we actually had to put in about 12 seconds of delay in our installer to let the MV, NVMe drop devices catch up. 
Didn't have a problem on Spinning Media, didn't have a problem on standard SSDs, didn't have a problem on MMC block devices, which is the slowest thing in the universe, and what I usually test on, because if it works there, it probably works anywhere else. Nope. MV, M, MV RAM. And what I think happened was, is that if you have the, the NVMe device plugged into a not quite as capable controller on the motherboard, I think there was a mismatch there. Yeah. That, that took a long time to track up, and actually I was kind of sad Zeb wasn't going to be here, although it didn't mean I get to be here. Uh, uh, because Zeb actually helped me test a bunch of stuff, and then of course found two more bugs while he was. You doing actually that. had fixed this for me way back in when NVMe really started hitting the consumer market, <laughs> and this was probably like MX sixteen at the yeah, time. probably fifteen or sixteen. I remember yeah. talking about that, and, it, and you actually helped me get past uh, getting NVMe to work back then, and was, we we got it fixed, which was really cool because I got to use my NVMe drive, and now yeah, well. they're, they're becoming pretty standard across the board. I, I was just interested real quick. One of the, the frustrations I have, and I don't know who the blame here is, but I feel like it's a miss in the Linux market and want to get your take. So recently it was announced that AMD surpassed NVIDIA in sales for their GPUs. And this is a big deal because everybody to this point has basically been saying, you know, and, and look, it's justified. AMD's GPUs, AMD CPUs in the prior generations were not anything to talk about in NVIDIA dominated the market and linux a lot of the big distros kind of bended to that right they put the proprietary drivers in now they're making it so that it practically installs itself as soon as you put the usb drive in and everybody's bending to nvidia but they seem to be missing the mark entirely when it comes to amd now intel is about to release their third-party gpu and now you're going to have again another company that releases their drivers and mesa uh, in Mesa and in the kernel. And so it's kind of an interesting thing because I don't see anybody really gearing up for this. For instance, the 5700 XT still doesn't work in Ubuntu's latest version. Nobody is really paying attention here. And I'm just wondering what your thought is on how can we fix this issue in Linux? Because there's going to be a lot of AMD people who aren't going to have a good time, much like at my lug event, trying to run Linux in AMD. Or Linux and Intel in the in next year. Well, yeah. So that's the thing, right? AMD's drivers are in the kernel. All their stuff's in Mesa. Why can't we? Why why can't we put the drivers in the current LTS kernel instead of just keep bumping the kernel version up every time we add an AMD driver? Right. Let's backport them back to four point one nine. That's the current LTS. Interesting. Um, there might be another one by now. I don't remember, but. That's I know 4.19 is an LTS because that's why we stuck with it on 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 MX. It actually just happened to coincide with Debian using it. Say what you want about NVIDIA, and trust me, I take care of the NVIDIA installer tool for MX and, and Annex. I hate it. Okay, <laughs> it is horrible. But what's worse is when someone boots up their computer with the $600 NVIDIA card that's in it, and Nouveau can't take care of it anymore. Right. I mean, we're seeing right now Nouveau is not keeping up with the card releases. So the and I'm sure and I don't know Ubuntu's actually said this, but I'm sure that's why they're installing they they have the drivers installed on their ISO by default is because there are cards no who doesn't support anymore, doesn't support yet I should say. So they have the same problem, but Nvidia because they're outside the source tree, the kernel tree, they don't depend on the kernel. They can release drivers whenever they want. Yeah. So that part's good for users. The bad part is is that it's a convoluted mess for everybody else to deal with, and, it's and that's source, why you right? have an yeah. Nvidia tool. That's why there are video tools for everywhere because you need them because it's yeah. hard to do. It's not hard to install AMD anymore. Now, we used to have tools for AMD back when it was the FGLRX, blah, 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 whatever that the driver was called. 
and actually the the tool we shipped to do our NVIDIA actually did them both because it was it originally started life as Solid XK's device manager. It just stripped all the stuff we didn't need out of it, and when they 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 don't use it anymore, so we just kind of adopted it. But it's it's, it's a strange problem because I I have AMD parts in my in, in the in the room. My next computer is going to have AMD parts, and I'm going to have this problem. Uh, I love that you're going to have this problem because that means you'll fix it. Well, <laughs> actually. <laughs> Um, and, and, and we do buy new hardware on the MX project for somebody once or twice a year. So usually they run into something and then we end up porting stuff back. But the fact that all this stuff goes in, you know, it doesn't come back to 4.19. It ends up in 5.3 or 5.4. Right. At some point you have to decide, Hey, why not, why not backport this stuff into, into, into the current LTS kernels? That might make a lot of pe- more people happy and speed up develop deployment of this stuff. Because even right. Debian updates their kernel, man. Okay, uh, it'll update two or three times over the life cycle of the Debian pro- of the current release. So uh, that's I don't know. That's that's the option. But kind of like you know, a hardware yeah. enablement stack feature is what you're talking about. But even those come out so infrequently in comparison to the hardware being released lately, and that that's kind of one of the issues. But I I yeah. agree with you. I think there's a solution here. I think a lot of people have been stuck on because, you know, that's what's been popular, the NVIDIA train here. But Intel and AMD are now, you know, AMD specifically is outsold NVIDIA. You're going to see a lot of people, all the laptops coming out now are having AMD Ryzen options. Mm -hmm. see a lot of people trying to use Linux with this. And this is our one open source hardware partner and the stuff doesn't (laughs) work. And that doesn't really make a great, um, example, I think, for Linux, right? Uh, when but, that but, stuff well, uh, you know, and I don't argue with that, but I'm also going to say that most people, I'm not going to use the generic most people because that bugs the bejesus out of me. When people say most people or most users, I have learned, if nothing else, in this time as quote-unquote lead dev for MX, I don't even think that's an official title, but we'll use it. I have learned that users are wonderful, magical people who will never do what you expect them to do. No matter, <laughs> no matter what skill level they have, okay? The brand new user will cut and paste that command from the ArchWiki right into your system, and it doesn't matter if it works or not, and, and it's your fault if it doesn't work, okay? Yes. Are you going to say that uh, I'm going to mess up my system by posting a bunch of stuff anyways? Because <laughs> <laughs> you would be correct. Uh, I'm just saying most people don't swap their video cards all that often. Yeah. They're expensive. Uh, you take the thing out, put it in. Maybe you solve this problem once. And just one more shout out for the Annex Live system, where you can set that up on whatever the fix you need to have on your USB, and then you're set for your own personal system from then on out. But yeah, I know. I think about every time I, I hear you talk about this issue on on DL. I create. I want to shout into uh, shout at the radio. You know, we have the DKMS build system. We could build drivers outside the kernel. You know, and add them. And it's not even just outside the source tree stuff uh, or outside open source stuff. VirtualBox open source drivers build this way with DKMS. Uh, okay, Broadcom's a bad example, but they do the same thing. <laughs> um, uh, there's a handful well, no, of others. I appreciate getting your insight because yeah. you know I don't think there's a I don't think there's a magic bullet here, but there has to be a solution. And and I want Linux to always be forward thinking and, and figuring out. Okay, we have this problem. And before I heard a lot of developers, well, it's just AMD, and that now matters a lot more because they're selling like crazy and maybe people don't upgrade their GPU all the time, but everybody's going through cycles at various times, meaning 
they don't follow when I upgrade my hardware. I'm not looking for, okay, when's the next hardware enablement stack coming out and then I'll buy it. Like I'm just buying it because I now have the funds and I'm going to go purchase my machine. You have all these people cycling in. And I think it's something we have to resolve. It's embarrassing, you know, in some ways when you have a whole group of people together and we can't get a single Linux distro period to run hardware that's been out there for five months. It's, you know, it's frustrating. It could be AMD's fault. It could be Linux fault. I don't really care whose fault it is. I just want people to start talking and fix it. But yeah. um, I think getting the hardware into the developer's hands is an important thing. But look, MX, going back to it, incredible distribution. I love the fact that you have some AMD hardware now and we'll start be playing with it because <laughs> that means all my AMD stuff is probably going to be working in there uh, very soon. Yeah, eventually. Yeah. I don't know. I, we, we had a lot. Of, we had a lot of changes, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of updates, and we've had a tremendous response so far uh, for us. Um, I just love hearing you have more developers coming in. I mean, that's yeah, the dream, that, that's right? been huge, and not only just developers. We've had we've got new translate, new translation staff, which I, I include in the development team. The, the translate, the translation team, the localizations team. We've got a new a new guy who's kind of coming in to to help take some of the load off of of, of the current team. And then we've got, of course, the the new guys with the install and the oh, and the uh, and the forum help. Just having the new guys in the forum with who are knowledgeable, you'll probably see a couple of names. We got a new 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 title, a qualified MX guide or something like that. Nice. Uh, and uh, so, because we can't pay you, so we're going to promote you with titles. They're uh, they've been huge because we've been able to work, and they're taking care of some of the basic support questions in the forum, and it's just nice. been fantastic. I've just been thrilled to death. Now, and it's weird because I just checked your forums and I don't have that title yet. Uh, now, my last 10 comments were, have you tried rebooting? But I feel like that is very helpful. <laughs> All yeah. right. Fine. Have you tried rebooting? Okay. That's good. You should search the forum for it. That's his other comments. I'm, yes. I'm going to find it now and I'm going to tag. I'm going to report every one of those. <laughs> report. Uh, that's a Windows sticks, isn't it? Oh, darn it, Bo. Yeah, you're right. You know, it's a Windows fix, but you know what? Sometimes it's right. Even in the Linux world, it's easier to restart than to go through all the mod yeah. broke. This is true. This is true. <laughs> all right. This week in the news, and I'm so happy you're here, Bo, to join us for this because there's some interesting things that I've I've found. And we are huge fans of Firefox, and Firefox 70 and 70.0.1 have been released which 70.0.1 released shortly after with just some bug fixes and a little, little bit of improvements from 70. But there are some great things in here in Firefox. You get social tracking protection now, which blocks cookies from site tracking like Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. This is now standard in their enhanced protection suite. So to me, one of the reasons I use Firefox is the privacy enhancements that they have, the privacy protection they have. And the greatest feature, I think, of any browser out there, which is the container tabs. Just incredible. Yep. So, yeah, this is this is something I, I really do like, and I think it's a great improvement. Yep. We all need protection from the intrusive tracking of our digital life, all these corporations and stuff. Really, I do less web browsing than I used to, just th because of the tracking software. And it's indiscriminatory i mean you go to joe blow's website and he's got a tracking cookie on there for facebook which yep. i don't have a facebook account thoroughly hate facebook but yet i'm being tracked by facebook and so you know right now the way browsers are i don't have any control over that except for like black holing facebook in my host file or something which really i shouldn't have to do 
No, I absolutely agree with you. And and the more you kind of dive into how far these companies have gone to get your information and the fingerprinting, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And um, thankfully, companies like Mozilla are out here trying to put a stop to it and in a lot of ways, shooting themselves in the foot because there's a lot of ad revenue that they're passing up. There's a lot of uh, partnership potential with these companies that they're passing up, which mean big dollars for them. And they're basically, you know, not deploying them um, for the sake of the users here. So to me, that is one of the reasons why Firefox is the best browser option for people to use. They also have Firefox Lockwise, which has received some improvements. This tool lets you access the passwords that you've saved in Firefox from an app. Personally, uh, I'm just a big fan of Bitwarden and utilizing that. But if you Mm -hmm. want to use Firefox, I guess, as your password manager, you have that ability and they've added things like be able to create, update, and delete logins across, which will feed across all your devices when you do so. Integration of breach alerts and complex password generation, which are key features to any good password manager. Um, They've also updated their core engine components for faster browsing um, and lots of bug fixes out there. But there was one thing, Bo, that caught my attention this week, and I found this on a Reddit post. And I was a little surprised because we talk about Mozilla being um, definitely one of the most secure and privacy-protecting browsers out there. There was a bug, a basically a vulnerability, a phishing attack potential And we'll have a link in the show notes of where you can take a look at this. But it's been out there for three years, this particular um, phishing attack. And Chrome, Internet Explorer, Brave, and every browser out there that I checked has patched this problem. But Firefox has not after three years of the issue being reported. The phishing attack basically makes users believe they are on a website like apple.com. And unlike other phishing attacks where... Normally, what they I've seen people tell individuals is, hey, if you click a link, make sure you go into the URL feed and check because the link, you know, the link may say apple.com, but when you click on it and you go, you'll see, you know, Bob's fake website won't really say that, but something that's not apple.com up there in the URL, or you can inspect the page and see that it's indeed not apple.com. But in this case, it uses basically some flaw in the puny code language translation. And if you click that link that says apple.com and then you go into your URL or inspect the page, it will say apple.com up in the URL field. It is a good phishing hack, basically, to make people think they're on the official site. Three years, they haven't patched this. How big of an issue is this, Bo? Well, you know, this is a really hard thing to fix because what it is is there's so many languages and we all use different characters for different things in different languages. You know, I'm Cherokee and we have our own civil area. We have our own ISO type of font that's out there and this is, you know, affected by this. Our A is different from an English A. So this is a problem with that. The thing about any kind of phishing attack is, is anytime you get a link, like in an email or something, don't click it. You know, don't be lazy, but go pull up your browser, whoop out your keyboard, and type the address in there. If you want to go to apple.com, type apple.com and go there. Because that way you absolutely are sure because, you know, if you're, it, there is esoteric ways of hacking a keyboard but the thing is, is somebody's already hacked your keyboard. They've already got your system. So, you know, the keyboard doesn't matter anymore. 
But the one thing you can be sure of, you know, normally on a system is, is when you type apple.com, you're going to go to apple.com and not something using a variant language to where it just appears to be apple.com. I just don't click links. You know, I get a link in an email, I look at it, I pull up the browser and I type where I want to go in there. Very nice. Yeah. I think that's good advice in general for everybody. I, I, I'm surprised by this, Michael. I know you're a huge fan of Firefox, and rightly so. You've been a huge proponent of it. What's the deal here, man? Uh, I don't I don't know why they're taking so long to fix it, and I, I understand that there's an issue with... And it's a very esoteric issue, and it is definitely going to be a situation where you're, look, you're basically clicking spam links. And if you're, you're going to websites that is you know, sharing spam links. So it's not like, it's not a common thing to happen. And it does require the domain to be a specific link, like not specific language, but it has to be from a, a single particular language that has foreign uh, character sets stuff. And I don't, I, I'm curious because I didn't, I didn't have the time to check to see if this, you know, thing I just thought of at the moment um, was, was uh, affecting it or not. But if you go to the, the website, it has it in the address bar that it's the, the, correct one even though it's not but when you hover over a link on a website does it show the puny code language of being like the right language or does it show the apple.com thing for example so i'm curious like what that would do um but i, I don't really know is it shows the puny code for just a second because i just tested it for just a second and then it switches to apple.com so if you were paying attention when you opened a link you can see that Right, but but when you when you hover right over the link in the bottom left, it shows you what it's going to go to, and you can get like it, it. I don't think that it would change that more than likely. Uh, it might, it might. If it does change it, then that's an unfortunate as well, and that's probably even um, you know a significant. Uh, it you does know. change it. If I just highlight the link, it says HTTPS Apple dot com. Okay, so yeah, the, then it, it's it's an issue that requires you to know that that's a problem. And that's unfortunate because that would be, you know, on a website, uh, whether you click it on another, like, uh, you know, in an email or something, because some email uh, uh, clients don't even show you what they don't allow you to hover over the link and show you what that is. You have to click it to do it or right click it and like look in your clipboard and see what it is like. Those are that's a problematic issue that they need to fix. And I have no idea why they haven't fixed it if they've been aware of it for that long. So. Well, they I don't do know. have open meetings because I've channeled my inner Noah here. And one of the things Noah says anytime anybody gives feedback on what Firefox could do is they have their meetings are open for anybody to attend. So for those of you who are willing to attend and things, uh, we'll have the link in our show notes. Bring this forward to Mozilla. Maybe it's one of those things where it was an issue that was going to get fixed and then it just got for, you know, was forgotten yeah, about. Fell through the cracks nobody, or something. Yeah. Yeah. Fell through the cracks. So hopefully they get that patched. That is so. I'm sorry. I was just reading it. It is so bizarre. Uh, yeah, just the it, character. It, and when you test it, it it works every time in Firefox. It does work. Yeah. And what it is is your browser is doing the automatic translation. Maybe your browser should be affixed to the language. You know, like my laptop set up to be English, American English. Maybe instead of trying to do auto translation. That's one thing that's bad about systems, and that's put attack vectors in there is, is we try to automate too many things. It really don't need to be automated. Yeah, why do I need a website yeah. translated it for, to Arabic? I can't read Arabic. 
you know, right. so I don't need any trans. And I know part of that was saying they were using like, you know, you, you use Arabic letters, but then you register a fake website. And it comes out apple.com. Yeah. Yep. That's weird because the, the, I mean, the solution to me would be like, why are you translating the domains at all? Like, what's the point yeah. of that? Like, why is a domain like, cause a domain should never be translated because it's a, it's a specific name to that particular, like that particular IP. So like, what is the point of translating that? So like, just stop doing that and that should fix it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's for the reader's benefit. I meant like, if you speak Arabic, you type Arabic in the address bar. And, but if you look at it in Unicode, it just looks like random characters, but you know, if you, it's translated, you know, if you're using an Arabic keyboard, it makes perfect sense if you're speaking Arabic. Yeah, but if they're speaking Arabic, they should be able to read the Arabic text. Or if yeah, speaking, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, if you're speaking Arabic and your browser should only read and translate Arabic, you know, it shouldn't do an automatic translation in the you know of the website. It just should hmm. read in Arabic language if your computer's set to run on Arabic. So yeah, the trick is, is you just use your keyboard. You can, you can be, you know, 99.9999% sure that whatever you type on your keyboard is going to end up in that address bar. Unless Bo has been hired to hack you. Yeah, unless <laughs> I got my little bash bunny and I've cruised by your desk and I've <laughs> rubber duckied your keyboard. Yeah. But Every time I talk to you, Bo, I feel like I need to get my tinfoil hat on. Out. One thing I would like to say about, the, you know, Online password, uh, you know, things that keep your passwords online. You know, I trust Firefox to a reasonable amount, but do you tr would you trust a random developer at Firefox with your house keys? Um, no, no. But then uh, why are you trusting them with your passwords? Well, I mean, th th there's a difference between I I agree with that, but I would also say that the the new Lockwise thing is a better structure than their old version because the older way that they did passwords was basically plain text, like every browser did. So now that they're implementing a like a genuine password manager that has encryption, like I, I, at that point, I'm like, okay, you know, you're you're making progress here, so that's good. But at the same yeah, time, it's progress, yeah. and it is better. And because you're right, back in the old days, it was just kept in plain text on your local drive. Right. Oh, and if you knew where that file was, you could go get, you know, all the password, you know, your banking passwords. Right. So look, this is a, this is something I tell people all the time. Never, never, never save your password to your banking. Never remember that and make it really long. Yeah. You know, that's the, one thing I don't keep is probably? I don't, yeah, I don't have any links in my bookmarks for my banking websites and all of my banking passwords are up here. I don't even write, you know, I've got, because I deal with so many passwords, I do write them down and hide them and, and got them locked up and stuff. But, you know, yeah, my, my banking password stuff, to my I, bank is if you mess with me, I'm going to call my friend Bo and it's a really long password, <laughs> but yeah. I also think it's a threat to them at the same time. <laughs> exactly. Sounds reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, my my password is six hour nineteen eleven. <laughs> six. Hour. 
So up next in the show, we wanted to talk about, you know, like discuss, like I have a big discussion topic. And we think that because of all the stuff that's been happening with various different VPNs, like NordVPN, we wanted to have a discussion about VPNs and do you need one? So there's not, there's no shortage of VPN companies that are being advertised across all, like across the web and like YouTube and all this stuff. They reach uh, out to us about seven times a week asking if they can yes. sponsor, but it is probably the scariest type of thing to allow the sponsor of the show. Yeah. You know? It's what it's one of those things where we, we want to have a VPN that we can trust to have us be a sponsor, but then it's like, but can we trust them? Cause we, we don't, we don't really know. Uh, but the, the question is, do you need to be, do you need a VPN to be safe on the internet? So Bo, I can't think of a more perfect person than you to answer this question. You know, I think the first thing that we would, bring up is there's a lot of VPNs that sell snake oil and a lot of their marketing is snake oil of, Hey, once you have this VPN, you could bank in the middle of a, of a Wi-Fi in your hotel and you're perfectly safe. And people seem to believe that, but there's also another mindset of individuals out there saying VPNs are dead. Nobody needs them anymore because now we have HTTPS. And so you already have an encrypted connection between you and your bank there's no purpose to have a VPN unless you're, for instance, trying to get around, um, you know, censorship issues from governments and that type of thing. But from a security standpoint, a privacy standpoint, there's no need for a VPN. What are your What are your thoughts? Well, after reading the Reddit thread, uh, the Reddit thread said that a VPN, you know, VPN is like a locked door. Well, no, it's not a locked door. You know, firewalls are locked doors. You know, the firewall that's, you know, between you and the public world, that is your locked door. And so that's what you really need to be concerned about keeping secure. VPNs are like a, a tunnel coming out of the basement and coming out down the street. You know, it's still an exit point from your house, but it's tunneled. And... You know, they are good. Well, I'll tell you the instance. I have a VPN server on DigitalOcean, by the way. Nice. But what I use that for is like when you where the good part about using a VPN is like when you go to a coffee shop. Because I can sit in a coffee shop and fire up Etherate, which is a wonderful little program. It runs on Linux. And I can sit there and I can, and this is something about people, well, oh, well, you don't need a VPN tunnel because we have HTTPS. Well, I can sit in that coffee shop and I can tell that you're going to gmail.com. I can't see your email, but even pa but passively, I can sit there and tell that you're going to gmail.com. And by watching the throughput of your connection to, to Gmail, I can tell whether you're just reading an email or whether you're downloading a file because I can see the throughput on that. And for VPNs, that's 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 a good thing. That's what I use my VPN for is like when I'm in Starbucks or a coffee shop and I want a secure connection or like when I'm staying in a hotel and I'm using a hotel Wi-Fi because also hotel Wi-Fi's, they're, they're very dangerous. And that's where I tell people to use VPN connections because what you're doing is, is like with my VPN connection, what the outside world sees is it looks like I'm coming out of New York City. And, you know, that IP, you know, if you geolocate that IP, it looks like that I'm coming from New York City. Right. If I'm going to Facebook, Facebook, especially if you use the VPN tunnel all the time, Facebook's just going to log your address that, yeah, they're not going to be able to geolocate you in Georgia, but still they're going to be able to track you by IP number because you're still coming out of the same VPN server. 
So that's just your public address. So that's still trackable, especially if you, because, you know, like Nord or some other VPN service, they don't ch randomly change their public address. So if you use that every day for your connection, that's just your outside address. So I and something else that people don't do when they set up VPN serv services is they'll still hard code their like laptops DNS to use Google DNS 8.8.8.8. Mm, yep. Well, it doesn't matter that your traffic's going through the VPN tunnel, and yes, it's protected. You've just let Google know every site you've went to because they track your DNS lookups. And if you're going to, you know, hillbillyheaven.com, Google's <laughs> going to know it because that you did a DNS lookup. It's not going to be as accurate as, you know, watching the direct stream and seeing what pages you're going to. But HTTPS just, it doesn't encrypt where you're going. It encrypts the data flow back and forth from that site, but going to that site is still traceable and trackable. Well, let me ask you this. You did something really cool at one of our lug events. You showed a hack and we got permission from the coffee shop owner to do this where um, we had our laptop set up in a row at the coffee shop and all of us using Linux. And you set up this hack where all of a sudden all of our computers Wi-Fi went out and came back up and you basically had spoofed the coffee shop's Wi-Fi. So yeah, we attack. Yeah, we reconnected to your um, fake Wi-Fi card. So now all of our traffic was going across your computer. So in that case, if I had a VPN, would you have been able to do anything with that as opposed to? Well, if you had connected, you know, let's say I ran the deauth attack, and what that does is it shuts down your connection, and then you reauthenticate with even with WPA2, that hash goes back to the AP point. Well, what that deauth attack does is it captures that hash. Then I can decrypt the thing, and now I got your Wi-Fi password. Wow but also using what they call an evil twin attack where I deauth you and now you connect to my evil twin AP point and now I can watch your traffic go through. If you're using a VPN, you know, if you, if you reset your VPN, even going through that the evil twin, I can't see your data. I can see where you're going, but I can't. No, really, I can't even see where. The only thing I see is the VPN server. So, yes, VPNs, you know, that's that's one reason why I brought that up about motels, because depending on the motel, you don't know whether somebody's running an evil twin AP point in a motel because it's a mesh network. It's yep. not like there's one AP point in a the hotel. There's there's 20. Well, if I fire up 21, how do you know? Yep. Right. And what's so right. interesting about that hack you did is we were connected to, I believe it was called barrel house coffee that was the that was the wi-fi access point name for it and then again the connection dropped for just a second and says you reconnected to barrel house coffee so everyone just thinks everything's fine and continues yeah they working. just yeah they just think it was some a blip yeah yeah just a blip oh well it disconnected ain't no problem oh it connected back there we go and that's the one beauty. Now that would kill your VPN tunnel, but that's one beauty about the VPN is, is you go, oh, well, I connected back my VPN. Well, it even going through that evil twin router, that that VPN, that IPSEC tunnel is going to protect your data. Nice. Love it. Thank you, Bo.
but it's not yeah one thing it doesn't make you anonymous if you want to be anonymous right. you can do like use a vpn tunnel and then use tor on top of that but it was like earlier i said your your all your traffic's coming out of an external ip address right so it's still tor, especially if you're doing it over the same vpn over and over yeah yeah over and over again where tor does randomly change your external ip to where it will hide you on the internet Okay. Yep. So there's uh, also a, we got a question in the chat. Uh, do you think it'd be a good idea to use a VPN at home? So, for example, like with your ISP, or if you change it to uh, Google or um, like a Cloudflare's one dot one dot one. If you're if you're using like AT and T or Comcast, and you're worried about their tracking, because AT and I do know for a fact AT and T and Comcast sell everything you look at. They sell your traffic to a third party. I mean, it's just a matter of money, and you can buy that traffic. I can know exactly, you know, for ten thousand dollars, I can know what you, you know, what your traffic is, Michael. If you know, if you're with AT and T, I can buy it. Michael and just canceled legal. his account. I don't use I use either one of those, so I'm good for that. <laughs> but by using a VPN, you know, using a VPN tunnel at home, yes, then you can hide your traffic from Comcast or AT and T. Right. Unless you're using their DNS and then they're going to, then they're going to track you by DNS. Gotcha. One thing I'd use is uh, here at my house is I have a bind nine server set up on a raspberry Pi that does DNS forwarding. So all the lookups it does, it doesn't use the ISPs lookup. It goes to the actual root servers and pulls down DNS lookups from the root servers and then caches it on that little pie. Hmm. And I turned my caching up to several days that way, like going to my bank website, it keeps that data, that lookup in that one little pie. But also I, on that raspberry pie, my logging goes to dev null. I keep all my log files on that, that, that little box in dev null. <laughs> Yeah. DevNull is a great place to keep your log files. <laughs> the yeah. perfect, the perfect place. Yeah. As long as you don't need to find them later. <laughs> That's true. They're really hard to grip after you keep them. <laughs> <laughs> That is so funny that that's the scenario you brought up, Bo. And I, I got to tell you, I've learned a lot just sitting here this yeah. five minutes listening to this. Uh, we did have, we, 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 we have been over at MX have been putting Sysby init scripts in for VPN services that don't provide them anymore. And so we get these VPN questions occasionally and guy was doing exactly what you just said. He was all VPN out all the way out to his server. And then he was using Google's DNS and mm -hmm. I was like, well, why are you, why are you bothering yeah. at that point? And another <laughs> thing about, you know, outside, you know, like, you know, VPN services, like I said, I have my own VPN server, you know, it cost me $10. Well, I use it for other things, but it costs me 10 bucks a month at digital oceans. Uh, but it's mine. I manage that box. I can go in that box and look at the logs. I know where the CA certificates are and stuff. You know, that's my little box. If I think it's been compromised, I can blow it away and build me a new one. You know, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier about Firefox. Would you trust some random guy, some systems admin at Nord? Would you get it trusty with your house keys? No, definitely not Nord. No, yeah. <laughs> guaranteed not okay. Nord. Okay, <laughs> then why are you trusting them with your banking data? Right. Right. Yeah, it, make, it makes sense. It's it's especially like the idea of like all these different services that yeah. we don't really know 
how like like they, they there's even sometimes where there was this um I, re- I was reading this article they were d- like digging deep into different VPNs and they even found out that some of them call uh they call themselves no logging but they refer to a specific type of log where they keep other logs yeah. and it's like you know like yes you're not keeping that particular log but that doesn't mean you know but like well they're trying to like dance around the issue and uh, so that was pretty interesting but Nord was one of those situations where everybody was talking about Nord and are promoting it like YouTubers and podcasters are always talking about Nord and then Nord gets hacked and then doesn't tell anyone for a year and a half. It's like, um, what? Yeah. Now, <laughs> so, there's a lot of controversy around the, the Nord thing. I hear some people making excuses for it yeah. one way or another, but the only outside VPN that I've personally trusted has been private internet access just mm-hmm. because they've had court cases on their logging and have proven to not in fact log because the government said, Hey, yeah. give us logs and we demand it. And they're like, well, here's our servers. Good luck. We don't have any. So I kind of trust somewhat uh, in there, yeah. but um, it seems that know, they do that, use dev null. Yeah. Yeah. They use <laughs> null to store it. So, I mean, uh, but you know, I, it's, yeah, it's like, I don't really, you know, it's not a matter of whether I trust digital or oceans or not, because the truth of the matter is I like digital oceans. I do think they're secure, but I'm not going to trust them with my house key. Right. right, but the thing I trust is is I can build that Linux machine. I can harden that Linux machine, and that way I know through my own level of trust in myself that that machine's secure. That's a good point. Well, thank you for clarifying that, uh, Bo. It was a perfect time for you to join in. I saw everyone asking the question in the Reddit forum, and there were so many different answers. But I've learned a ton, so thank you. Well, the thing to always remember is all networks are hostile. <laughs> That doesn't make me feel better, Ex- but except, I agree with what you're saying. Except for the Destination Linux network. <laughs> oh, oh smooth. Well done. I, I'm, on here, I'm on here, ain't I? So it's hostile. <laughs> Wait a minute. Let me get this other laptop going. <laughs> <laughs> it's about to be hostile. <laughs> so we've skipped the gaming section for multiple episodes, and we started to receive complaints. Where is our gaming section? We want it back. So we have brought it back. It's just been chaos with all of the different interviews and things, and the shows have run long. So we apologize for our fellow gamers out there. We have a good story for you. It is really based on Steam just continuing to get cooler. Um, If you've logged into Steam lately, you may have noticed that they have been very busy overhauling the look and feel, as well as adding a plethora of features to Steam. Um, Now, some of the enhancements include sorting games into dynamic collections, customizable homepage, new event system, better looking layout, search abilities, all cool things, not earth shattering, but all cool. Um, But one feature I really like is the new remote play feature. So now you can invite Steam friends to join your local co-op a local multiplayer or shared split screen game online. So what this means is there are games out there where locally you can do like a split screen. If any of you are old school gamers, you might remember the game 007 where you probably had four or five of your friends and everybody had a little box. Um, So you can split screen these games. They don't have servers. The game companies don't pay for servers to be online full time. And so if you wanted to play with your friend who lives in another state or another country or whatnot, you can't. You can't play that game because it doesn't have a server for everybody to connect to to play. But with remote play, Steam is, and it's in beta, is trying to fix that, which would basically allow you to take that game that doesn't have a server and still allow you to play that game um, as if they were sitting there next to you uh, in your office or on the couch playing a game. 
So I think this is a really cool feature and something we could potentially utilize for November 9th. Is it November 9th? 9th that we are doing a game night with the whole community out there. So you're going to have Jason Evangelo and Zeb uh, playing some games. Then they're going to hand it off to some of the other folks on Destination Linux Network, likely me and Michael. And then somebody said they were going to try to play Rocket League against Michael and do like a US versus UK thing. And I laughed because that means we automatically win because Michael's like Diamond or something rated in Rocket League. Champ 3. Okay. So yeah, um, uh, but this is really a, a really cool feature by Steam once again, just adding cool things that Linux folk can use immediately. Yeah, I think this is fantastic. I, I as 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 a as a father too, and we play a lot of the the, the Thumb Smasher games on the TV. Yeah, and now my kids are getting bigger, and one's a couple three hours away at college. I think this would be really cool for game night when we could all play. Maybe, maybe me and the youngest are still here thumbing our mashing our buttons on the TV and he's off doing the same game. That's kind of cool. Yeah. That's awesome. That that's, that's, uh, that's going to be a great feature. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not much of a gamer, but I would use that. Yeah. Yeah, That, that would fantastic. Yeah. Though actually one of the cool things about that particular feature is that it's only one person needs to have that particular game and someone can just, they, they, they essentially stream the, inputs and the uh, video or the imaging to the player who's this remote and they can just play so that the person who's local will be able to just have the input being sent back to them. So many cool things about that particular release. And and I actually like the, the, like the latest be- the update for this. It's not even a beta. It's just a regular out. Now uh, they've in cleaned up the way that the searching works and the way the layouts work. And they have an option where you can just hide all the games that are not Linux based. Uh, so, which is, you know, that the best, the best, one of the, my favorite features is it used to be like you could go in and check down the thing and you could say, okay, I want to have it this particular, you know, could drop down and then you could show it. But this way you could just have it like a toggle. I have it automatically. So I, I, I like that. And, but the, the, the remote play is just fantastic. So we need to try that for the stream for, for sure. Definitely. This week's software spotlight is in map. It's an easy to use network scanner that lets you discover hosts and services running on your computer. One example of where an everyday user can utilize InMap is this command. It's in, and we'll have it in the show notes, but it's InMap and then TAC S capital T space TAC uh, O and local host. And this will show all of the open ports that are out there on your computer. So Bo, you talk about making sure that, you know, you reduce the amount of attack vectors that you have on your machine. Open ports are a hacker's dream. Uh, so you may see things like your typical ports open there, which your 631 TCP for printer or 9050 for your Tor browser, for instance. Uh, however, you may also see some ports open that you forgot you opened because you're working on some project and needed to close them. So InMap can be found in the repositories for most every distro out there. Do you use this tool, Bo? This is my favorite tool. InMap is the Swiss Army knife of network work diagnostic i've been using nmap uh, since i think since version one or something i mean i i mean i've used it in every job i've had i mean it's even a great tool for systems admin when i was a systems admin i use it daily and doing tech support when i ran a tech support center all our people had nmap i mean that's what they use to check all the web servers down first thing you could do is go to nmap Check to see if port 80 is functioning and talking back. Uh, it's also got in on a Linux machine, you've, it's got a scripting function. 
Now your scripts can be found in slash user slash share slash nmap slash scripts. It's got various scripts. Now these scripts, some of them are hacking tools, I guess you could say. But right. the good thing about it is, is like it's got an SMB versioning script in there. And so what that'll do is it'll hit a Windows box and it'll give you the SMB information off the machine. It'll tell you what type of machine, what version it is. You know, if it's like Wind, Windows 10 or Server 2012 and whether it's running like S, SMB V2. And this is not only good information when you're trying to crack a box, this is good information when you're trying to troubleshoot an SMB connection from a machine. Very cool. And it's, yeah, it's my go-to tool. I must use that, especially in pen testing, I must use NMAP, oh, 20 times a night. And most of your big scan engines like Nexpose and Qualsys and all these major players Really, NMAP is their base scanner. So, yeah, this is something I've been playing with just recently, but you've given me some ideas out there how I can get more proficient with it. So, I appreciate that. It's the go. Oh, and another thing if you're not used to working at the command line, there's a really nice GUI interface for it called ZenMap, Z E N M A P. And the one thing I really love about ZenMap, when I first started using NMAP and I was on a Windows machine and I loaded ZenMap, the ZenMap, you can go in there and click the buttons on what kind of scans you want to run. And, and it's basically, you know, like a Windows push button thing. Right. But the thing that I really love about it is, is it also writes the scripting out in a little dialog box. So you learn oh, what the flag, yeah. So you learn what the flags are, Very like nice. tax, small s, large t. That's a TCP connect. Well, if you're using ZenMap, you go, oh, I want to run a TCP connect scan. So you click the TCP connect button, but you see it pop up in this dialog box, tax s capital T. Mm. And so you, that's how I learn flags. No, I don't use ZenMap anymore because. I've used NMAP for so long, and it is faster at the command line. But that is how I learned about the flags. Nice. Was using ZenMap and watching that little dialog box and learning that, and that's what told me, you know, taught me how to use the flags. Yeah, that's actually you got our software spotlight and our tip and trick. Yeah, there we go. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. However you do it, we love our patrons. So we just want to give a special shout out to all of you for your support. We do a live show for patrons. So come on and join us if you want to be a part of the show. You can join for just $1 and that's darn near free. We also have several new tiers out there with additional perks to check out. And speaking of support, become a part of the community by going to destinationlinux.network and joining our forums in our new Mumble server. We have Linux for Everyone, DOS Geeks, This Week on Linux, the Ask, Ask Noah Show, Tux Digital, a DLN game night is also in the works so that we get all the show's contents and information by heading to destinationlinux.network. And please get back to us and let us know what you think. If you have any burning questions, we have numerous methods for you to contact us. Uh, so send your emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. We have our Telegram group, Discord, Discourse, Twitter, Mastodon, everything you could think of out there. If you want to reach us, it is available there for you. But we love hearing from you, the community. So comments at destinationlinux.org. 
And if you want more contact from us, the, the fun doesn't stop here. We also have our own channels as well as some we're, uh, we got guests here. So stay tuned for that. We're going to get to those sections as well. So if you want to check out Ryan's content, go to youtube.com slash dosgeek, where he fills your brains on uh, hardware, software, and all things Linux. You can check out my content at tuxdigital.com, where I do an in-depth weekly Linux news podcast called This Week in Linux and other Linux-related content. You can check out Zeb and Noah's content. We'll have links for those in the show notes. But be sure to check out uh, Bo Bo Weaver's books. You can check out his books, uh, Kali Linux 2, Windows Penetration Testing, uh, Penetration Testing, A Survival Guide, and many more. And uh, you can go to BoWeaver.com to find out more about that. You can check www.boweaver.com. That There, there we go. go. www.boweaver.com. No wild cards in my DNS. Okay. Make sure you type that name too. Don't yes. just click on the link. Don't just click you it. You got to type it in www.or6u.boweaver.com. And check out uh, dolphinsmxlinux.org. Uh, you can check out the latest release of MX Linux 19 there. And everybody have a great week. And remember, the, the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.